But we got a guest speaker for today and next week, my brother, who's an Old Testament professor out in Georgia. Now my brother comes from outside of the PCA, so if he pushes our, our bubble a little bit, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to push. I don't know if he will. I don't know what he's going to say. Uh, today's a little bit of a twist. Hopefully, we've been talking about ethics as individual Christian behavior. Today's going to certainly includes that. This topic includes that. This, this would probably be more in the way we use the term, fall into an apologetics course. Um, we get challenged with certain questions about faith and how we can believe, particularly events that have happened in the Bible, uh, and how do we respond to that. But it's also an issue of what is ethical for God. So kind of wrap it in. So let, us, uh, let me open in prayer. Our Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, enlighten the eyes of our hearts to to see Jesus today, to understand your word, to gain confidence in your word. Uh, thank you for the teaching gifts for Kenneth, and we pray that his words would be clear and articulate, we'd be open to hearing from you and being challenged even in the ways we might think. Equip us always, Father, to, to not only live our faith, to be able to share it and defend it in a godly and a loving way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's up to you in the corner <laughs> whether you can see it or not, um, but this is the best we could do. Uh, it is good to be with you here for this week and next week. Um, as Keith was talking to me about different topics, we had a debate about what ethics meant. When I mentioned this, he said, that's not ethics. I said, of course it's ethics. Uh, of course, he's thinking at the, the ground level, the day-to-day, -day, but our ethics ultimately derives from the character of God. And in my world, as I'm interacting with um, students, both Christian and non-Christian students, and interacting with kind of the world of ideas, um, there are several uh, issues that are challenges, um, both from skeptics on the outside, as well as, I, and this is probably where my real heart is, there are many people sitting in the pew who struggle with some of the same things, but they're not, they don't know if they can share that. <laughs> And so this is a pastoral issue as well, and certainly our living is based on who our God is and the confidence we have in him and his character. Um, and some of the top issues that are out there, whether you get on an atheist website or just talk to, to people, especially in my world of 18 to 23-year-olds, issues of violence in the Bible and issues of sexuality and now issues of justice are probably the three top issues. Um, I've had to adjust. I used to, one of my teaching philosophies, if you can get them mad, they're not bored. And I've had to shift on what to make them mad about. Um, but this is pretty easy uh, on these kind of issues. And so I want you to think back to 9-11, right? It's one of those events we all know where we were. And think about how the world changed, even the way people started talking after that. Um, I was sitting at Southern Seminary doing a PhD in Old Testament theology, and so my world is wrapped up in the Old Testament text, and so in the aftermath of 9-11, when we first, maybe for the first time, many of us started hearing about this Islamo-radical fascist type of approach, um, and these people doing this in the name of, of their God, and the immediate, right, the visceral reaction is, Obviously, that's wrong. That's disgusting. You know, we think of the Crusades and, and other things. And I guess I was sitting there thinking, well, 
I'm living in the Old Testament world where God had commanded Israel to do certain things, and that's what they're saying, and so how do I comport that? I mean, I, I, in some sense, I have the same visceral reaction. Obviously, this is wrong. But, of course, what that then started was this kind of, um, in the radical version, the new atheism, but it really became more of a cultural thing where all religion, especially some of the traditional religions, uh, were suspect because you could look at the sacred text and you see certain violence where God seems to be involved. And so the, it has shifted in the culture, and this is out there, and it's very sensitive, and it has ramifications and implications in areas that we may not make the immediate connection. But this is a hurdle for both Christians and non-Christians alike. And so I threw it out there, so we're going to do it. So just go through. I've got to have to go back and forth because I don't want to touch the, the demonic computer here. Uh, let's just start with some text. Let's, right, we start with our Bible. <clears throat> and there's more we can go. So this is Deuteronomy. We captured all of Sihon cities that time and devoted to destruction. Every city, men, women, and children, we left no survivors. And basically the same thing says with King Og in the next chapter. <clears throat> now we get to the actual policy of how to do war. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. You shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hiphites, Jebusites, Mennonites, whoever, as the Lord your God had commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to their abominable practices. So notice the, the, rash, the, the rationale clauses. That they may not teach you to, to do according to the abominable practices that they've done for their God, so that you sin against the Lord your God. <clears throat> Joshua is usually where the emphasis comes down to. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old. Notice how specific it gets. Now the animals get it. Oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. And a bit more blunt here. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed. And note the last phrase, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. Another one. It was the Lord's doing. <clears throat> I just want you to note here that this is the narrator, right? This is not a, a character in the story. This is the narrator saying, it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And maybe the most troubling one comes in 1 Samuel. Thus says the Lord of hosts to Saul, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So of course the question is, what do we do with this? And I want you to pause and actually think, or if you've got somebody sitting next to you, actually take a minute. What's your immediate response? These are texts in your Bible. If somebody, whether there's somebody, maybe a teenager or a neighbor, and they raise these texts to you, 
What's going to be your response? Presbyterians don't have neighbors. They don't talk to each other. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> I've always felt like that was God's way of preserving the lineage of Jesus. Was protecting his, his people, the Israelites. So, you know, Jesus would ultimately be born, and, and these people stood in the way of that happening. So get rid of them. So, okay, I guess I'm supposed to repeat. That, so, because Israel is the path to get Jesus, basically, these people stood in the way. And so then the thought would, I, could, I guess I could play devil's advocate with, with this. The thought would be then, then that's okay. So, right? Get rid of them. Um, so maybe what's in the thought of missions, we could just get rid of people on the mission field who are standing in our way, and maybe we should kill some abortion doctors and save some lives. And I mean, these are the kind of conversations people go with. Like that, that may satisfy a theological position. It won't satisfy the skeptic who's who's troubled by this, it only adds to it. Hello. Check, check. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so so um, I often thought that he wanted them to obliterate the people that they were coming into the promised land. He wanted to obliterate the people that were going to end up maybe being bad influences on them. Yeah, that's what the text says. Yeah, I mean, like, you're going to have a barbecue with your next-door neighbor, and then you're going to start... So kill their babies. That sounds good. Worshipping Baal, you know? Yeah, that's exactly what it says. That's the problem. That's the problem people have. To get rid of them, their children, their animals. Yeah, so we don't have barbecue with them. Yep. I'm a great devil's advocate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I get... Um, I have gone through this question a lot, especially with my kids. That's the number one reason they don't believe in Christianity. And Exhibit it, yep. My only answer that I have is that God's ways are higher than our ways, mm-hmm. and that there's so many things in life that we're never going to know this side um, of heaven. And I don't have the answers, but I still believe in God Almighty, whether I understand his ways right. or not. I'll still submit. So in your case, that works. And in your kid's case, at least up to this point, it, that hasn't worked, right? And that, this is reality. They don't want telling them what to do, is sure. basically. And not God, and they just don't like any of it. Because they want to live how they want to sure. live. And so, at the end of the day, you just have to love and accept people, and it's okay. I don't, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm right. not the person who saves anybody. So, I can just love them and, you know, not worry about it. And this is a good case where, and I don't know in the case of your children, um, it may be a legitimate excuse, or it may just be the excuse they go to when the real excuse is, I want to live my life. So it could be either one. Those are both options on the table. Sometimes you grab hold of a, something that sounds like a good argument, and really that's not the real issue. The friendly Presbyterian, yes, go ahead. <laughs> Well, the thing of it is, is that Christ has not come yet. So because he hasn't come, the people in the Old Testament were, were, had to be separated from the ones that were not heirs of salvation. They were not remnants. They were not part of God's eternal plan. So um, because Christ hadn't come yet. But when he came, it was a different issue. So it was okay to kill him before Jesus came, but not after. It's not, it's not, 
that within, okay. within the lineage of Jesus are two Canaanites. Yeah, and so, there's, there's many more. Tamar yeah, as well. Yeah. Sure, Tamar. Yeah, at least two. Bathsheba. So as long as they're not the elect, it's okay to commit military it, Before Jesus, okay. I'm not sure that's going to satisfy the conversation. But we're also thinking, yes, well, some have been converted, but I'm also, there are Christians who struggle with this. Again, it's worth trying to put it together. Because my whole... My whole approach is deal with this as an issue, and are there better ways to handle it and worse ways, I, I, I guess. Yeah, one more, yeah. Um, I think <clears throat> something, and R.C. Sproul has a really good uh, lecture on this, but something, again, it's the same thing we have to deal with in the rest of the Bible, is that as humans we don't understand the holiness of God. And God was not telling the Israelites to wipe out innocent people. I mean, by, in truth, we all deserve to be wiped out like this, and it's by God's restraining um, his own wrath with his mercy for a period of time that we're not all damned to hell, every single one of us for our sinful natures. And so God is, and, I, and it's something I've talked with people about, which of course they don't like to hear, but we are not God. We are not the ones who are supposed to, you know, deal out wrath on, his wrath on our own, um, he has the right to do, the potter has the right to do with the clay what it desires. And these people, again, they, something R.C. Sproul liked to point out was they weren't innocent. They were sacrificing their children. They were doing all sorts of abominable things. And in the end, I mean, towards the end of the Old Testament, um, God exercised wrath on his own people when they started doing the same kinds of things. So I think as it, it's our natural desire to ignore how sinful humankind is and that God has the right to wipe every single one of us out. Um, he just hasn't because he's merciful and has extended us that mercy for a while. I'll just give a few responses. Um, so when you talk about innocence, right, the list included infants and oxen and sheep. And so, yes, you could have, you know, a view of original sin that at the absolute sense, but does that still make it palatable. I mean, why don't we act like that way towards infants and children? We could say that to everybody. Everybody in this world is not innocent at that level, so why shouldn't we treat them in certain ways? This isn't, but this isn't God just sending a flood. He used his people to do this. And that, that extra step, right, using humans to exact God's punishment, I mean, this is potentially the argument people have to shooting abortion doctors or whatever, right? They're not innocent. And so this becomes an ethical issue in those decisions of how to treat certain people. Or it just comes down to your God commanded you, the Muslim says his God commanded him. So in a world, in a pluralistic world, you're going to speak your rhetoric, they're going to speak theirs, and I guess in the end we'll find out who's right. That's a hard way to live life, right? And to engage people thoughtfully. Because yes, we could stand in our churches and say, this is what God has said. You don't understand it, fine. I'm not sure that's going to reach anybody. And then you have to ask, are we called to reach them? Are we called to woo them? Does the Bible invite us to present our God not as a God that looks like a moral monster in their eyes, 
but in a way to engage them, to draw them in. So even if certain things are said that are maybe true in some sense, that's the tricky part, right? How do you engage people who aren't going to agree with that? And so that, that's the issue here. Oh, I guess got to get the pastor. He went inside the last one. Nice to see you, Tim. <laughs> questions you're asking because they're they're right to ask that however uh, nowhere in the Bible do I see us having the right to judge God uh, I don't I don't see that as a, a right but the other thing is are we to engage people in order to get them to agree or to witness to the truth for example God may have used Israel to destroy these pagan nations, but he also used the Jews, Rome, uh, uh, the Romans, everybody else to crucify Christ. And so that works both ways. And I, I don't know, I mean, I, I am for winsomeness, I am for speaking of grace and gospel. However, there's truth. And uh, truth has an edge to it. And these truths are bitter uh, on the outside and sometimes sweet in the middle, but they're, they're hard to process. But at the same time, I don't think apologetics is necessarily proving anything as much as giving a witness to what God has accomplished because that's not all the scriptures have revealed about God. Yeah, I'll have more to say about this. I'm not... Even the answer of, well, God is this. I mean, you're, yeah, I'm not trying to just be winsome. And I'm not trying to just get them to agree with me. But I see a, a posture in the Bible that's a bit different than the way Christians often engage these kind of topics. So hopefully by the end we'll get there. This is just my take. This is my struggling. So I think, um, of course, this is what the culture is saying. Um, now, maybe not this sophisticated way, but here's Richard Dawkins, who takes texts like these and say, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And other than that, he loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Um, now, I'm not trying to convince Richard Dawkins, though recently he just came out and admitted he can't say there's no God for sure. Um, but that kind of thinking in more subtle forms is out there. We, we, and you've got people sitting in the pew who read some of these texts, and there's a distance. And I don't know what conversation is going to be helpful, and it may be helpful in different ways, but there is an issue. And I would just say up front, I think one of the postures I think we need to have is to say that this is an issue. I don't think it's a Christian response to say, ah, it's God, that's what the Bible says. If you, don't, if you can't empathize or feel that this is a cognitive, emotional, right, that there's a disconnect here, I question that. Just case sera, sera, I'm not sure it's much different than some of those radical Muslims. And so I'm trying to engage an issue that in the end, spoiler alert, there is no good answer here. Um, 
but is there ways to, to massage it, to nuance it, to, to mitigate some of the issue um, that might be helpful either for yourself or to, right, sometimes in conversing with people, all you want to win is the next cup of coffee, right, and to and continue the conversation. So I want to go with what I think are three dead ends. These are answers that would make it easier, but I'm not willing to go there at least yet. But these are answers that have come within Christian circles, and I don't think they're as viable. One is to say it's an Old Testament problem. Now, I have a visceral reaction about that, because there goes my job as an Old Testament professor. Um, it seems anti-Semitic immediately, but beyond that, um, right? I mean, in some ways, many Christians live as if the Old Testament is, is irrelevant, but I don't think our faith can stand, I mean, right, as, as was stated, Jesus is Israel's Messiah. Everything God was doing from creation into the choosing of Israel, the covenant with Abraham, right? The, we, the, Jesus is the culmination, the climax of all of that. And so I don't know how you read your New Testament um, even half carefully and think that the Old Testament is irrelevant or if it's just an Old Testament problem. The biggest problem with this is you basically would then think that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament. I don't think we can just chalk this up. This is part of our scriptures, unless you just have a different view of the scriptures. So that's the least tenable answer that I could think of. And by the way, when it comes to violence, the New Testament is far worse than the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't talk about eternal destruction the way the New Testament does. Hell, eternal destruction, that's New Testament language. It's, it's very rare, if ever, in the Old Testament. And so I actually think that issue is far worse. And I must give the new atheists, like Richard Dawkins, credit. They go after Jesus in the New Testament, too. So they're equal opportunity haters for all religions. Um, here's another one that is actually, um, when I first came across this, I thought, oh, you're just making something up, right? Because there are modern versions of this that don't like the, the edginess of some of this. And so they want to spiritualize this. Right? This isn't actually talking about taking literal swords and chopping off literal heads. Right? It's, it's, it's just like kind of rhetoric for other kind of things that are happening. And my first thought, that that's just an excuse. But it's, it's interesting reading through the history of the church. Many of the early church fathers, you go to Augustine on these texts, and he will read these texts and say, in order to protect the integrity of God and the integrity of Scripture, he allegorizes these texts. That's Augustine. And so he had a theological way, of, in, and, and his sincerity was to protect God and the scriptures. And of course, they allegorize lots of things for, for, for various reasons. Um, I may come back to, to a modern version of this that's not total allegorizing, but um, there's partial truth to some of it, but you can't take away uh, some of the little aspects here. Um, I wish that, right, I wish I could go with Augustine here. That's not how I'm reading the scripture. It, it certainly would make it easier. Another option is to say that the Israelites misunderstood um, God's command. They say God commanded it, and so this would take a view of scripture 
Um, I can think of Pete Enns, maybe a name some of you know, a modern Old Testament scholar who used to teach at Westminster uh, and has gone progressively to the left, but he's a believer. Uh, he raises really good questions. Um, but he likes to quote a, a professor he used to have when he was a student at Westminster that God lets his children write the story. And so it would be a view of Scripture that what we have in Scripture, even use the word inspired if you want, but it's the people through their experiences with their God, and so that the scriptures are giving the stories from their vantage point, right? It's almost like when we say the sun up, sun down, that's our vantage point. Their experience with God, um, they thought that God had ordered this, and they happened to be mistaken, and we know better now because we know who Jesus is, right? There's a whole way to get there. That, if you want to take this view, which some Christians do, it would take a different view then certainly this church would hold on the scriptures, right? And I think even those who hold that would say, yes, of course. As I read the text, um, in a world of hermeneutics, when the narrator speaks, we call that an omniscient narrator, meaning he has the mind of God. So when it, if, if it's a prophet, even a prophet saying something or some other character, you don't have to take that, right, 100%. Even prophets spoke wrongly at times. But when it's the narrator speaking, uh, the view of Scripture that we hold together is that the narrator, when the narrator speaks, it's as if God himself is speaking. Um, and so that, that would take a different view of the text. So I'm not willing to go here. Maybe one day this would be, I, I'll fall into one of these camps. That's always possible. Um, but I'm, I'm not ready, which actually raises the bar, right? This would make an easy way out of some of the problems that we, we might have. So, so how do we go with it? Well, I'm going to go with certain framework, kind of big. This is how I handle lots of questions that are tricky and not easy answers, is one thing I do is just start saying, what does the Bible actually say? I don't want to just read a verse here, there, in Joshua. I don't read the book of Joshua. I want to read the book of Deuteronomy. I want to read the book of 1 Samuel. And you'll find out some things that may be interesting. Even the language sometimes, like the labels can be unhelpful. Conquest, right? What do you think of when you hear conquest? You know, it's like carpet bomb, right? A modern day. I don't know, um, I, I don't even know which one was it. Was it when we first, I don't even know where. Was it Afghanistan or Baghdad when we went in? The shock and awe, right? Just that language when it first came up signaled something in my mind that was very different than the reality of what that was, right? So sometimes label, holy war. So sometimes labels can be unhelpful, and I think conquest is one of those because it gives you the impression they went through and wiped everybody out. And what we'll find out is that is not what happened. If you actually get your map out and look at the cities in Joshua, you'll find out they did not go into the middle of the cities. They went to places that were military outposts. These were on the outside of the cities. And so what you're dealing with is engagement with actual military people and their families. It doesn't take away that issue, right? The women, children, animals. But they were not going into the middle of a city and just indiscriminately taking out everybody. They really were engaged in military combat outside of the city. So that, that mitigates it. It doesn't satisfy, right? It'll never fully satisfy. 
It's not Geneva Convention quite yet. We notice, as, as was mentioned, there are conversions along the way. So whatever the all meant, and you Calvinists can understand this, all doesn't always mean all, and we have real-life examples of conversions. And apparently, God was not upset that they did not kill the people who were converted, right? And it was in the line of Jesus. Um, here's probably the big one that in some way my dissertation contributed to unknowingly. I studied the theology of exile in the book of Deuteronomy. And what I learned in that study, just to be very quick, is that the words for exile, the normal words are never used. Instead, you have what I call annihilation language. Totally wipe them out. Totally kill them all. And so exile, which is literally not killing, but removing from one place to another, and yet the language of exile is death and destruction and annihilation. That was in Deuteronomy, and I was not interested in this topic. I was interested in exile and Jesus in the New Testament. But it was interesting that, that the reviews of my dissertation said, this is a really helpful point for this other issue in Joshua. And so the language of wiping out biblically may include literally killing, but it seems that if you could remove people from their place, that was a sense of destruction. In fact, if I really wanted to get nerdy and to get into the Hebrew language of harem, the, the, the word that's translated to devote to complete destruction, it's a bad translation. There's different ways of taking that. And so sometimes it's our English language, our English Bibles that aren't really helpful because they signal something in our mind that may or may not be, in fact, what the Hebrew is saying. So the idea of destroying could include killing, and I don't take that away, but clearing them away and perhaps even taking away their identity, where their persons could be there, maybe in a conversion sense, you take away their identity and their connection to the paganism, and that is a form of destruction or devotion. So there's different ways to take this, but this is the idea of clearing away. We have examples in Joshua. The people ran, and you don't have, and they went after them all the time, right? Removing them from the land, because that was the purpose, to have the place, that was good enough. And so that's what you see in the book of Joshua, however you're going to put that together. And we know that there have always been Canaanites in the land. In the days of, of David, right, he's dealing with Canaanites. And you could chalk that up to disobedient Israelites who doing their job, maybe. And we have one example of that in Joshua 2. Um, or that that wasn't the point. And remember in Deuteronomy 7, the same book that says to wipe them all out, it says do not intermarry with them, right? which assumes there will always be Canaanites in the land, or you wouldn't need that kind of prohibition to not intermarry with them. So the text makes it much more nuanced than the few proof texts might show. So this is not a carpet bombing of the whole place and literally 100%. That's just not what happened. So that at least raises some questions, and then I deal with um, historical context. This so-called holy war, which I don't like the language, but that's the label that's out there. You realize that this was actually quite limited. In this sense, 
Holy war itself broke God's normal rules. And we need to pay attention to that, that biblically this was out of bounds for the norm. This is not the way that God normally had Israel behaved. Notice that in the text we did before, the bottom one, it starts with a but. This paragraph comes after God's normal rules for war. And when you read the normal rules for war, it says, it gets very close to modern way of thinking of just war theory, that you are to do all that you can to only go after those who are engaged against you. You were to protect the women and the children. You're supposed to offer terms of peace. If you read the paragraph before this, it's quite different. The way that Israel would normally act. So then you have to ask the question, why was God himself willing to break his own rules in that sense for this particular, that there's something unique about entering the, the promised land that God would not allow Israel to do normally. It's at least something worth asking. It doesn't mean it's going to satisfy everybody, but it's an issue. I'm going to bring these others up with some question marks because some will be more comfortable with going this direction than not. Um, but this next one I'm quite comfortable with, but I, I realize some Christians may not be. Would you allow the genre of military talk, military rhetoric, to allow some hyperbole? Now, I think if I had time to show you the way that ancient Eastern texts talk about war, um, you'd realize that hyperbole is a normal part of the genre. When people read military reports, they didn't expect to get an exact one-to-one -one correspondence to reality. It's kind of like Southern Baptists promoting their evangelism numbers. You expect the numbers to be inflated. It is part of the rhetoric. Sorry, I'm a recovering Southern Baptist. Um, and so it wasn't lying. You just know that that's part of the way they talk. It's like when we say, let's kill them all, right? We don't really mean that. Um, and if you allow that, that at least, again, says that when you see this total destruction language and you couple that with actual examples that it wasn't total destruction and you get in the language and realize, oh yeah, that word doesn't have to mean that. And then you look at ancient Eastern literature and say, there seems to be a genre issue going on and that we can't have a simplistic way of reading specific types of narratives. So that also would allow that, yes, you go in and destroy a place but there may have just been a percentage of people that were dealt with. So you've got to decide if you're comfortable with that kind of genre question. Another one that comes with a double question mark. This might be tougher. Some of you might be able to handle the, the hyperbole issue, but not this next one. But I, I throw it out there as an option. Um, I'm trying to relate this. So I just finished writing a chapter on justice in Deuteronomy, and I was reminded of how, how slow and inefficient God can be <laughs> from our way of thinking. God rarely plays the revolutionary, right? He doesn't call Abram and immediately change his worldview. Abram has to progress a lot in his way of thinking. 
And God, for whatever his own purposes are, he chose not to just, you know, snap his fingers and change everything about it. Just like us, right? When we're converted. And I think there's evidence in the Bible that God moves Israel, takes them within their ancient Near Eastern uh, context, and allows them to continue to work and operate in ways that we look back with a little bit of, huh? Why didn't God move faster? So this is issues of slavery, issues of patriarchy, um, and other, other of those areas. Um, we have Jesus himself saying divorce was not God's intent, but he permitted it, right, due to hardness of heart. And so the Old Testament law, if I'm thinking about the law in particular, does not represent God's ideal. Even though it's from God and was spoken from him, it doesn't mean all the details in there are his ideal, right? And we have Jesus' own confirmation on that on divorce. I think most of us would say the same thing with issues like slavery. Um, is it possible then, it's a true question for me, that God allowed Israel to accommodate herself to fighting war the way people fought wars? And so in one sense, you know, you brought up Jesus, yeah, certainly the way God was operating, certainly post-Jesus, had moved beyond that. So I just throw that out there that, yeah, it's ugly, it's yucky, but again, God's not saying, this is exactly the way I want my people to be behaved. But then you deal with the other issue, why would God allow that? But we deal with those questions all the time, about God permitting things. So those are some historical cultural considerations. And now some theological considerations. All right, now I'm going to not play devil's cat and, and agree with the first comment here from my brother. Um, and again, I, I admit this won't satisfy necessarily a skeptic. But in the big picture, Israel getting into the land, yes, was necessary to produce the Messiah, which is salvation for the world. I recognize that doesn't help the Canaanites out back then. And I recognize you can say, well, God could have done it some other way. Yes, I admit that. Those are still problems. But in the final scheme of things, this is God's positive promotion, right, of having relationship with his creatures throughout the world. And so without this, we would not have gotten Jesus in the way that God had set up things. And at some level, that has to be brought into it. Now I'm going to bring up one that's really crazy, and I'm going to apologize already that I'm bringing it up because I won't be able to go into detail. Um, do you know there are giants in the land? These Nephilim and Anakim and Raphaim, Amin, Amorites, all sorts of names. I happen to believe, I'm just going to have to say it and move on. I happen to believe that in Genesis 6, the sons of God who enters the daughters of men were... Um, We'll call them angels. They're not really angels, but I don't have time to talk about little G-gods. Uh, angelic beings who impregnated women and created giant clans. I think that's what the Nephilim were. And these Nephilim are still there. The, and so you have these hybrid creatures who are connected to other gods who are demonic, right? Fallen angels in our way of thinking. And they are really trying to thwart God's plan. And I think this explains why this was a unique situation 
and why this wasn't the way of normal holy war. And if so, these are scattered. They're all of these Canaanite things. You've got these giants that are implanted within. And I think God was trying to remove them because they were the biggest threat to the gospel going forward. And we know that David and his mighty men finished these off. Goliath was one of the final ones of these. You think that's kooky sci-fi? Fine, we can have a side conversation. Just throw it out, but it's there. My students love and hate it. I don't know what to do with it. But I think it's real. This is the one that I think most of you would naturally, and in fact, many of the responses went this direction, that God is the moral sovereign. He has the right, and I had a footnote in the chapter I just put out saying the very same thing. When humans start to question God's justice, they're out of bounds. That is true. This is my one concern, especially coming from a Reformed Baptist background and with my own initial responses. As I think back to 9-11 and the responses that those Muslims were giving, man, they sound a lot like a bunch of Calvinists. Our God said it, doesn't matter, who cares? And I don't think the Muslim God is the same as the Christian God, and I don't think our responses should be the same. And so that's, I want to make sure we are able to have this conversation where Yahweh doesn't look like Allah. Because the truth is, and this isn't to beat up all Muslims, in, but I, I think it's a false religion. Um, and thankfully, the vast majority don't take it to the end that some have taken it. But their theology is that Allah really is sovereign in the absolute sense, and there is no connection, right? There's no connection in morality. It's because Allah commands it that you do it. There doesn't need to be a reason. In fact, to ask Allah for a reason is unfaithful. Islam means submission. Muslim is one who submits in the absolute sense. So Allah is a capricious God in that sense. I'm coming to the end here. Ooh, I can't, I don't, I can't use the communion plates. I was trying to, I need two circle things. There you go, that'll work. Offering later, no. Um, if this represents God's view of right and wrong, and this represents our view of right and wrong, here's the Islam view. It doesn't matter if there's any crossover, right? That's the theology. Of course, you don't want this view. That's a God made in our own image, right? Christianity is somewhere here. <laughs> Does that even make sense? There's a lot that consists with our sense, a conscience, right? of right and wrong. And so much of the Bible, including the Old Testament, is wooing people. Don't you see how go good God is? Don't you see how great he is? It's, it's, it's him trying to connect with your sense of reality and right and wrong, and he does it better. If you read the Deuteronomy, that was the goal. The missional goal was all these, these nations are going to see what's happening. They say, wow, what a great people. What a great law. And of course, the kicker is, what a great God you must have. They were supposed to draw people in, just as we are today. But there are those slivers on the outside. 
that there's going to be a distinction. There's going to be a separation between the way God sees things and the way we see things. And so the difference between you is that might be a small sliver, and you're willing to deal with the, the unknown, the difficult. Where for your kids, it might be closer to this. And I think in some ways, we have to allow people. Like, if people are going to leave Christianity, this is, this is a better reason than others, right? Because it is a problem, and we need to acknowledge the problem. But like you, I mean, the two people, I could do one Old Testament figure, one New Testament figure. Abram, right? God wants to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the wager? Don't you love God just like, okay. <laughs> right? 50, 40, 30, none righteous. You, you do not see Abram leaving that conversation completely satisfied and praying Yahweh, right? You find him troubled, but what he does is he offers that rhetorical question that for him was enough even though he couldn't put it two and two together. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He was willing to submit himself to God based on the experiences he's had with God and the trust, right? He's, God has built up trust, if we might say, with Abram. So when it came to a point that he couldn't be intellectually satisfied with, he could hang on, and it was okay. He didn't have to connect the dots. And then I think of Peter. We like to beat up Peter, but think about Peter. Feeding the 5,000. Everybody wants to make Jesus king. They almost push him off the cliff, right? And he gives that not-so-user-friendly sermon. You got to eat my body and drink my blood, and they all scatter. And he looks over at his disciples. What about you guys? You can leave too? And Peter, remember what Peter says? Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. You don't get the sense Peter had it all put together. <laughs> He's like, uh, <laughs> but he knew Jesus. And so in some ways, there's my answer, at least for me personally. I struggle with these things. There's things God does and says that I don't like, I don't agree with, I don't know how to put it together. But the experience of what he's done for me is enough to hold on. And sometimes you have to allow somebody to see whether that is true on their end. I know I'm way over the time. I apologize I was coming in. All right. We're done. All right. Thank you. See you next week. We'll talk about sex. So come back.